0: Welcome to episode 25 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. There are few political projects in recent years that have been a source of greater hope and inspiration than Rojava, the Kurdish region of northern Syria. Inspired by the political philosophy of Abdullah Öcalan, the imprisoned co founder of the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK, Rojava embodies, at every structural level, a radical ecology, direct democracy, and a deep commitment to gender equality. The revolution in Rojava came to global attention a few years ago through the prism of the fight against ISIS. The liberation of the besieged city of Kobane in early 2015 by Kurdish military forces that included the Women's Protection Unit, or YPJ, resulted in a huge amount of international media coverage. Few headlines at the time went unaccompanied by fetishized images of young Kurdish women in uniform, rifle in hand. Although always threatened by a hostile regional geopolitics, the Kurdish people's revolutionary social political experiment finds itself now under renewed bombardment. On the 6th of October, Donald Trump announced the withdrawal of US troops from the region, effectively giving the green light to Turkish President Erdogan to invade under the auspices of creating a 20-mile buffer zone in which up to a million Syrian refugees who had fled to Turkey might live. Just a few weeks on, and hundreds of Kurds have been killed, hundreds of thousands forced to leave their homes. On the morning of 2nd of November, we sat down with two activists from the Kurdish Women's Movement, Dilar Derek and Elif Sarikan to discuss the situation in Rojava as it's currently unfolding and what meaningful action is needed in order to safeguard its future.
1: So ever since the Turkish state started its so-called uh, Peace Spring operation, which was basically able to go ahead after Donald Trump gave Erdogan the green light after a phone conversation, the situation has been nothing less than a humanitarian catastrophe Uh, because on the first or second day already more than 100,000 people were displaced from their homes. Immediately the Turkish army and its uh, jihadist forces, its allies on the ground, uh, were committing war crimes and massacres against civilians. So journalists that have been there on the ground in that moment, and also those who were on the other side of the border reporting from Turkey, observed that the Turkish army was shelling civilian settlement areas. And um, among the first images that we've seen come out of uh, the war of this, um, which we don't call an operation, it's basically a war for occupation. It's an invasion and it's uh, illegal. It's violating uh, all kinds of laws that you can imagine. Uh, Among the first images that came out were extreme forms of violence against women Um, Hevrin Khalaf, for example, who's a a female politician, a Kurdish woman, who's also a women's rights activist. Um, She was uh, executed. She was assassinated in a very brutal way uh, by these jihadist forces. Bodies of dead YPJ fighters were mutilated. And these war crimes, uh, which are explicitly violent against women, which explicitly target them because uh, women have, of course, been the Uh, The symbol, the most um, prolific kind of ideal of the Rojava revolution are now being targeted systematically because they represent the project that has been implemented there since 2012. But on top of that, of course, a massive humanitarian catastrophe. By now, hundreds of thousands of people have been displaced. Uh, More massacres against civilians have been committed. But on top of that, it's, it's created a lot of uncertainty and instability in the region, Also, of course, the fact that many ISIS fighters and their families, ISIS sympathizers, were able to escape from their prisons because the Turkish army actually targeted areas that are very close to these uh, camps where these people are staying. So this has been the impact of one phone call between Donald Trump and uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. uh, But at the same time, uh, we must not underestimate the fact that people are resisting. People have been determined. A lot of demonstrations, protests have been organized. Uh, large campaigns, especially by the women's movement, have been organized. And around the world, um, and now, actually, today is the 2nd of November, the day we're recording, it's World Resistance Day. So we will actually go to a demonstration right after this. And uh, around the world, there will be demonstrations, and there they have been already. So on one hand, you have this um, coalition of states, a coalition of states that are not in a formal coalition, but they are, are all working together towards the suppression of an emancipatory project. But on the other hand, you have a true international community of people, uh, especially among women, who are here to defend the revolution in Rojava. Mm.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's definitely something we're going to come back to about the, the character of the revolution. But as you say, it's been a humanitarian crisis. There's been the displacement of hundreds of thousands of people. Many people have been murdered as well. What has precipitated this? Has this kind of aggression from Turkey come out of nowhere? Or is this typical of what we've seen throughout history?
1: I mean, the the Turkish state's uh, claim on that region is... Manifold. So basically, on one hand, the Turkish state claims there are terrorist elements across the border, on the Syrian side of the border, and that these need to be eliminated, just like ISIS members and ISIS as an organization uh, has been targeted on an international effort. So the Turkish state claims that the autonomous administration is basically a terrorist uh, entity. And um, he equates, when whenever he gives speeches, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, he equates ISIS and the YPG and YPJ and the PKK all. He uses this in one form, basically, mm. implying that they're all actually working together to undermine the Turkish Republic. So, um, but of course, you need to put this into a larger historical context Um The Turkish state has for decades launched a war against uh, the Kurdish people within its own uh, nation-state borders. Um, We can even go back all the way to the arrival of the nation-state in that region, uh, which has of course divided the historical homeland of the Kurdish people. Uh, But on the other hand, it created uh, the nation-state as a project of homogenizing identities, of uh, making it possible only for one state with one ideology, one flag, one language and so on, uh, to rule all the people in the region. And uh, while these states in the region may be different, but their logic is often very similar and it's basically based on the denial of difference of uh, democratic life between peoples. So uh, when the Turkish state is now claiming to want to resettle refugees uh, that have been living in Turkey for the last few years, there are now approximately 3.6 million uh, refugees in Syria. So Turkey is actually the country that hosts most of the Syrian refugees around Mm -hmm. the world. Uh, Now, Erdogan wants to resettle these people in northern Syria, northern and eastern Syria, but that area is historically Kurdish. It's a majority Kurdish region. So basically, he's explicitly talking about demographic change, about an ethnic cleansing operation. Just very recently, live on television, Erdogan said that those areas are not suitable for the lifestyle of Kurdish people. It's suitable for Arab people because it's a desert region. That's what he says. This is what the president of another country says about how people across the border should live. And he decides whose uh, ethnic lifestyle, whatever that means, uh, is suitable for what region. So... That also shows that this person does not believe that people can actually live together. And um, so in this sense, it's basically an ethnic cleansing operation against the Kurdish people. It's essentializing all Kurdish people with uh, basically claiming that they are terrorists. Uh, and uh, also it's it's part of Turkey's larger um, desire to become a hegemonic power in the region because Whilst this operation across Syria, on the other hand, uh, is, is happening, Turkey has, of course, launched a massive war against the Kurdish population, especially after 2015 when the peace process with the PKK has collapsed. So Turkey has actually created so many internally displaced people and refugees itself and now is receiving still you know, support from the European Union, for example, and t- Turkey has been receiving billions of euros from the European Union. Uh, to cope with the so-called refugee crisis. And he's actually weaponizing refugees. So whenever Europe is criticizing Turkish uh, policies, whether it's this war or other things, he threatens Europe, saying, I will send you all these refugees if you don't like what I'm doing. Hmm. So it's, it's really tragic. And uh, at the same time, the Turkish state is also occupying uh, parts of northern Iraq, of uh, southern Kurdistan. So there are lots of military bases in the region. So basically, the, the Turkish state is creating a, a war against the Kurdish people in three countries right now. And that's because uh, in its plan to expand and become a hegemonic power, of course, because the Kurdish people live in those border regions uh, in in four different nation states, that means whenever Turkey wants to do something, it will be met by Kurdish people. So it's not only about uh, an ethnic cleansing campaign against the Kurdish people, like I said, it's also very ideological when you consider the fact that um, the forces that Turkey has allied itself with are actually, as has been proven by many investigative journalists, are uh, sometimes former members of ISIS or they are people who have very similar ideologies. And I mean, if you look at their methods, especially in terms of the violence against women um, that they have employed and continue to do so, uh, it's, it's very hard to see a difference between what these groups are doing and ISIS. So, mm.
0: so why was Trump's decision to withdraw American troops so significant? It's clearly had far reaching consequences, but why was that decision so significant vis a vis like the Kurdish people in Rojava?
2: I think when we speak about the decision for Trump to withdraw troops, firstly, it's important to understand that even his initial announcement wasn't, despite him saying we're bringing our troops home, that wasn't the plan. It was to withdraw them from the north of Syria. Initially to a part of another part of Syria called Deir ez where you know it's an oil-rich region, or to a part of Iraq. So it's not a we're bringing our troops home to keep them safe. We shouldn't be involved in you know overseas interventions and so on. It's sure. it's not it's not a win for anti-imperialism like yeah. some people have discussed. As Delar has mentioned, it was a literal green light for a Turkish state invasion, which has already been carrying out ethnic cleansing and so on as, as explained. But I also want to point out that it's quite unusual for a world leader to, Publicly announce that he is about to commit ethnic cleansing before he actually does so. And even so, you know, Turkish President Erdogan makes public announcements and public statements every single day uh, for various reasons. Um, obviously, he needs to seem within Turkey because of the historical. Um, kind of formation of public understanding in Turkey, He, well, they feel like the public needs to understand them as a strong leader. And therefore, while he's losing and feels like he's losing support domestically, he needs to become a war hero once again. How has uh, Turkish state leaders done this for at least a century is by committing massacres against the Kurds. And it's a shame um, to say the least, of course, because... You know when we talk about the Kurdish question in Turkey, I think in some ways, it's important to perhaps see it as a Turkish question in a way that you know there is a state that has for a century tried to indoctrinate its people into feeling like the existence of another nation is an existential threat. And so although obviously many Turkish people, have been allies of the Kurdish movement, you know, uh, people in the progressive Turkish left and so on. But also many people who consider themselves to be progressives within Turkey still maintain this position. And so, you know, Erdogan, again, the other day, he made an announcement saying, you know, if necessary, we'll expand our safe zone, quote unquote safe zone. Um, Which means, if necessary, we'll expand our invasion and our occupation, which we always knew, the Kurdish people, the Kurdish movement, always knew, particularly when you look at the track record of the Turkish state, whether domestically or in the last eight years or so within Syria, that once the Turkish army comes in, that they are not going anywhere and they're only going to want to expand You know, it's ideology, some people call this project like a neo-Ottoman project. Whatever it may be, it's one of the oldest rules in the imperialist handbook where, you know, you make it seem like it's some sort of a humanitarian action to invade another country and then you just use it to expand your territory, you know. Again, uh, we always talk about Afrin in 2018 when the Turkish state invaded with their jihadi allies. But the invasion of Syria by Turkey also happened before that, you know, in Jarablus and these other areas. And it was always multifold. It was always to stop any gains of the uh, Kurdish movement based on democracy, ecology and women's liberation. And therefore, they always strategically invaded to uh, create corridors to try and isolate communities from each other. And for us, it was not a surprise by any means that the uh, the self-appointed leader of the caliphate Baghdadi Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was found in a place in Syria that is under Turkish control and his right-hand man was found about five kilometers or so from the Turkish border. None of this is a, is a shock to us and I guess that kind of tells it all is that we're, we're not surprised by this anymore. What we're still surprised by is the lack of Acknowledgement of this by the so-called Western democracies. And again, I think the world needs to see this as not just as a threat to the Kurdish people, the uh, political and social experiment that's been implemented there, but also as a failure of the so-called promises of Western democracy, and therefore see that these issues are very deeply interlinked, as in it's not just about... Although very important, it's not just about meaningful international solidarity, but the fates of people in these areas of the world are directly interlinked. You know, if there's a development of a democracy in the Middle East, it will mean a development in many other parts of the world. And that history has showed us that so... I think it's important to understand the intentions of the Turkish state. It's important to understand, despite contradictions within some of these nation states, whether it's, you know, France condemning Turkey, the US, literally the US Congress um, boiling with dissent around this and whether it's like certain words of condemnation uh, by the British state ideologically, they're always going to be invested in the futures of these nation states. So it's only the people that will be able to, people all over the world that will be able to resist this and that will be able to rise up and say, our fate is the fate of uh, the Kurdish people and vice versa. So we can all work towards a meaningful future.
0: I mean, at this point, perhaps it'd be good to talk a little bit about the political character of what's been going on in the region, right? Because it's something that's excited. A lot of people over here, there's been a lot of talk in recent years about what's been going on in Rojava, direct democracy, the the women's movement, ecology and so on. Could one of you or both of you unpack that a little?
1: It is important to stress that the people in Rojava um, have been an organized community for decades, actually. So if you ask the women in particular, you will hear that many of the older generation, for example, who are now at the very front of the demonstrations or who have lost their daughters and sons in the war against ISIS or against the Turkish invasions, they will tell you that their revolution actually started 40 years ago, their women's revolution in particular, with the arrival of Abdullah Jalan in Syria through Kobani, actually. So um, the... People on the ground have been organizing, uh, despite the Syrian regime's um, you know, attacks and uh, tortures and imprisonments and massacres against the people on the ground, they have a political consciousness that was fostered over decades through this underground organization by a revolutionary movement. So when people, especially now, uh, want to understand Erdogan's uh, claim that it's it's basically the PKK that's operating there. One needs to understand that, well, these people, uh, Abdullah Jalan's uh, ideology goes beyond uh, his identity as the founder or leader of the PKK. For the Kurdish people who are not associated with the PKK as well, who are not members of it, he represents, and not just for the Kurdish people, for many other people as well, he represents a thinker. He has a philosophy As Elif mentioned, uh, based on an ecological women's liberationist radical democratic paradigm, uh, he's written uh, several books explaining and expanding on his ideas, especially developing the idea of a democratic nation against the nation state. So in this sense, uh, we can say that the system in Rojava since 2012, uh, this is when the Rojava revolution was announced on 19th of July, 2012, within the context of the Syrian war, They seized the opportunity at the time, the fact that, you know, there was a certain chaos. And in the Kurdish movement, chaos is always interpreted as if you struggle and if you organize yourself, you can turn that into an opportunity for yourself, especially as women. So uh, immediately people started to organize themselves and say, if we want true change, if we want true justice for Syria, we cannot just have a regime change, we need to have the system change. And I think this is something that resonates with a lot of radical movements around the world that the system needs to change. Mm -hmm. So since the beginning they have advocated uh, what they call a third way, which means to not let yourself be pulled into uh, the conflicts that exist between a regime and an opposition which was increasingly more, unfortunately of course it was the 2011 protests were a amazing protest by the Syrian people and the Syrian revolution is something that, you know, needs to be held, held up. Um, But unfortunately, the uh, elements of the opposition that became violent and that were armed by groups like Turkey, by states like Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Qatar and also the Americans uh, have unfortunately then tried to claim that legacy, that revolutionary legacy of the Syrian war for themselves uh, against the regime. And uh, so Rojava tried to stay out of this. And uh, according to the people who were there when, when the revolution was first announced, who you know, seized the government structures from the regime, and the regime at the time was busy fighting uh, against others in other parts of Syria, uh, they said, we need to, you know, we need to organize society. We can't just have armed clashes against uh, these different groups, and one must stress here that, I mean, we know this because we were protesting as early as then in two thousand and thirteen, for example, Cirekani or Ras Al Ain was already attacked by groups like Al Nusra, and actually I was in Cirekani, uh, this region that is now currently you know occupied by the Turkish army in two thousand and fourteen, and the civilians were saying that the border wall that Turkey then started already building did not exist when jihadist forces like al-Nusra uh, had control over it. Mm. You know, so actually they were saying that these jihadists were crossing from Turkey and that Turkey was happy for them to attack the Kurdish uh, people. And we know that, of course, that's throughout uh, Erdogan had no interest to invade when ISIS was occupying elements of uh, its border. So in this sense, it, it was significant that these jihadist forces immediately attacked uh, Rojaba the most, after, of course, they have committed a genocide and feminicide against the Yazidi community, Yezidi community in, in Shengal, in Sinjar, in northern Iraq. Um, so only after 2014, when ISIS spilled over to Iraq... International attention was received about what ISIS and people started talking about ISIS. But we were talking about ISIS in 2013 already, you know, y- years before this coalition was formed. We were in the streets uh, and I want to hear mention Mehmet Aksoy, who was especially active in London. He's a friend of both of ours and he's actually very close to here. He's now laying in Highgate Cemetery because he was killed by ISIS. And he was among the people uh, who were shouting, Turkey is supporting jihadists. Why is everybody looking away? As early as 2013, now, six years later, we're still saying the same. And Mehmet is dead now because he was somebody who was documenting this liberation in Raqqa and he passed away uh, two years ago. So what I'm trying to say is that none of this is new. But from the beginning, what was built up in Rojava was a society that was trying to stay out of these geopolitical developments, which was of course reacting and organizing itself accordingly but on the other hand was uh, building up its grassroots democratic structures, its, its women's uh, movement was strong from the very beginning because Star, the Umbrella Women's Movement, had its first congress at the time it was called Die um in 2005 already. So people, especially women, had already this experience of organizing themselves on the ground. And uh, maybe Elif wants to explain more in detail what these structures look like.
2: A lot of people in the last particularly five years after Kobane, that's when a lot of people started talking about the fight against ISIS and, you know, particularly Kurdish women and the the front pages of international media outlets were plastered with fetishized images of Kurdish women in military fatigue, comparisons to celebrities, and therefore like stripped of uh, the meaning of what these people, were fighting for, but even what they were fighting against, you know, that wasn't even acknowledged or delved into properly. It was about beautiful women with guns fighting against bearded barbaric men. This was the dialectic that was created, which obviously is deeply problematic and one could try and analyze and unpack this for a long time. But, you know, no one spoke about why these people were fighting and how they came to fight. You know, when we like Dilar mentioned, Serakania and Kobane and especially Kobane is somewhere Ojalad first crossed over into and therefore stayed you know, stayed in many houses, just normal, ordinary Kurdish homes, and made an effort to turn every Kurdish home that he touched into an academy, essentially. And therefore, you know, when we talk about the Kobani resistance and the most recent Sarakhania resistance, which, you know, we need to emphasize that the resistance of places like Sarakania should not be left to the history books. The people of Sarah resisted against the second largest NATO army for 10 days. And this isn't something that's inherent or natural or Kurdish people are not just naturally good fighters and they're able to resist or, you know, somewhat fend off these kind of attacks. It's because they know and they have been taught for decades what is at stake and what to fight for and how to fight Together and that's really important because a lot of people when it's seen as you know this like faraway land it's like oh those people it must just be a cultural thing that they naturally like rise up and they naturally are good fighters that's not the case particularly Kurdish women you know we we are from the region that is known as the birthplace of patriarchy and therefore there has been so many levels of uh, patriarchal oppression and suppression and violence and so on throughout thousands of years and so for these women to be able to even begin to overcome what has been imposed by a millennial or multi millennial old uh, system came from organizing, came from building women's solidarity and came from uh, resisting together and understanding that we must organize, we must educate and we must act and all of that must happen all at the same time and none of them should be given up at the expense of the other, all of these ways. And therefore the Kurdish women's movement um, and in Rojava under the umbrella of Congress made an effort to make sure that the method in which we organize, And the systems and the structures that we build were also inherently liberationist. And so, you know, starting to build from the very base level of society, where people organize as communes. And again, there is no, it's important to also point out that there isn't a pattern that can be like taken and applied everywhere in the world. And that's what's important to that, you know, the way a system, a a political system or an ideological paradigm works for a locality must be organized and discussed at the local level as well. You know, because all over Rojava, even, there's communes and assemblies, obviously there's uh, organization at the Canton level. Not every single commune doesn't look the same. Every single commune doesn't have exactly the same committees. You know, there's committees for media, there's committees for education, there's committees for building a cooperative economy, uh, health committees and uh, self-defense committees and so on. You know, the list goes on, but not every commune has to have exactly the same structure. It's, It's discussed at the local level. And so... The way the women's movement began to ensure that women's liberation would be institutionalized in in that way was to ensure that every level of organization and administration had a minimum 40% quota for women. And I think actually in most places in Rojava, in Northeast Syria kind of voluntarily it, it, over time so happened that there was more women in a, a lot of the structures than men. Because once women kind of once you get a taste of freedom and someone was talking about this on Twitter the other day, how do you get rid of that taste of freedom once you've, you know, once you've seen it and it, it just doesn't happen. You know, that's it, it stays there. That desire to be free is in every human and so a 40% quota for women, there's a co-chair system. So every, again, every level of administration has a man and a woman co-chair. Again, the woman co-chair can only be selected by the autonomous women's structures that runs alongside every, uh, again, every level of organization And so, and again, this is all ways to institutionalize women's solidarity, have preventative mechanisms to make sure particularly men. And when I say men, it's not just about men kind of like biologically. It's like the mentality, patriarchal mentality cannot co-opt women's uh, structures. And and so women elect uh, or select the co-chair. And they also have autonomous women structures that have veto power over most decisions that are made in uh, what we call general structures, which are mixed structures. And um, also there's the self-defense structures where women also organize autonomously. But even for the mixture, you know, people know about the YPG and the YPJ, but there's self-defense structures locally about what is called the Asayish and the Hepe je is what I think it's called. We have so many acronyms. I'm sorry about that. Um, And again, you know, women are trained in self-defense, but anyone who is given a weapon to protect and defend their local areas is not given that without receiving women's liberation education. So as to, again, prevent, obviously, the patriarchal mentality of defending in an offensive way, but rather it's resistance, it's self-defense. And also local... Self-defence structures are accountable to the very base level of society, again, to be able to uh, ensure that there is no monopoly of violence by any general overarching structure. These systems are developing, of course, and they're they're being discussed all the time, particularly the cooperative economy uh, aspect of it. There's cooperatives being built in every corner of Rojava. When I was there last year... I was very happy to hear that there was a um, they were developing a cooperative to make sugar out of beets, which was amazing. There's obviously like olive oil um, and uh, olive cooperatives everywhere because and this was one of the characteristics of Afrin, too, before the Turkish state and its jihadi allies invaded. And basically also as like a psychological warfare tactic, cut down so many olive trees yeah, and this is still being developed. And this is one of the things that is at stake with the Turkish state invasion.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask what the consequences for this all are going to be given recent events. And hasn't there been some sort of involvement from the Syrian government as well, and a sort of absorbing of some of those forces within the wider Syrian army? Or is that something that they've attempted?
1: The fact that the Syrian Democratic Forces were forced to um, invite the regime, the Syrian regime, into those areas that the Turkish state wants to occupy was a very difficult and tough uh, compromise. It was framed as that. It was a horrible compromise that they had to make, considering, of course, the fact that the Syrian regime is known to be the greatest killer of the of the war in Syria. There is so much blood on the hands of this regime. Uh, the Kurdish people have been historically oppressed by the Ba'ath Party under Bashar al-Assad. And uh, in this sense, People know what it means to invite the regime back. But that also shows you just how much of a bigger threat Turkey is um, uh, than anyone else right now to the project in Rojava. Now, because things are developing very fast, uh, it's, it's difficult to see where we will go, you know, with the whole world basically with this. Uh, But what it looks like right now is that, well, the Americans have left, have returned. Now they want to uh, protect the oil fields uh, in Deirazor, as Elif had also mentioned. Um, Now, yesterday, um, Russia and Turkey started joint patrols. And the civilians in those areas, uh, again, majority Kurdish areas, have actually thrown rocks and stones at uh, this joint patrol, uh, despite, of course, the danger (laughs) to their own lives. We can definitely say that because of Trump's uh, policy in in Syria, Erdogan has been able to go ahead with everything he wanted until now, and of course, uh, Turkey has played a game with both with the West as well as with uh, with Russia and Iran and the Syrian regime. On the other hand, especially with the Russians, Turkey is trying to have continued good relations and there have been some arms uh, you know, exports between the uh, two. So in this sense, it's difficult to see where this is going. But on the other hand, um, the, the Syrian Democratic Forces, from their military's perspective, but also the political institutions in Rojava, the, the Autonomous Administration of Northern and Eastern Syria, And all of the civil society, uh, so the women's movement, the youth, um, also, for example, the the Syriac military council and um, Syriac, Assyrian organizations there have said they will resist and they will not, um, as Elif was saying, you know, once you have lived uh, for six years in a completely different system which, you know, of course, it's, it's a struggle to create a new system. It's not something that happens. Over, and it would be against the spirit of democratic autonomy as well to, Im- to simply impose something on the people. But in a creative manner, in a way that looked like negotiation and struggle, people have been able to find a way of living together in a region that was built on the logic of the nation-state which basically only, well, it's still called the Syrian Arab Republic. So in that region, in this very diverse region, where also we should say it's also mainly a historically Christian region uh, and a lot of the communities who live there, the Armenians, the Syriacs, Assyrians, uh, uh, Chaldeans, are also survivors of past Ottoman genocides. So these people interpret the Turkish state's invasion plan in that, in, in historical ways. So... Um, what does it mean, basically, this, this this war? So in that sense, people are looking for alternatives. They are determined to protect this uh, system that has given them some sense of historic justice. So the diplomacy that needs to be led also by by peoples, by movements, by struggles, cannot be state-centered. It cannot uh, just wait for states to take decisions. We can't just react to the next tweet or phone call uh, by (laughs) Trump. But we need to be able to organize ourselves, to set agendas ourselves, instead of just accepting whatever happens as fate, because that's not how Rojava was built.
0: Mm. So what can people on the left here in the West do? Again, events are changing quite fast. This is probably going to go out in a week or so. So I know it might not be too specific, but in general terms, what, what needs to happen?
2: The reaction, but also the way the revolution in Rojava, uh, the revolution of the Kurdish movement has been uh, understood by people all around the world has been quite humbling for a lot of us who have been organizing around this for a long time so i think uh, people's reflexes have certainly been uh, quite beautiful and quite meaningful. But of course, we, there needs to be more done. There needs to be more done to channel the energies we have into taking, but also uh, influencing action as well. And again, like Dilar said, not just state-centric action. So it's not like all of our actions should be uh, directed towards trying to get, you know, for example, in the UK, the British state to make a decision. But it's it's to make sure that, the entire world knows that the future of the Roger Revolution, the, a revolution based on uh, a radical democracy, ecology and women's liberation, is all of our revolution. And therefore, the victory of that revolution would be all of our victory. And that's mainly because particularly since the 80s, you know, in the late stage uh, aggressive capitalism, neoliberal capitalism, particularly, even though there's been a crisis of capitalism and people have been talking about this for decades, one of the ways that ideologically capitalism and capitalists have been able to maintain that we must save capitalism from itself and try and improve capitalism rather than create an alternative to it has been has been by saying, you know, alternatives to capitalism do exist, but they won't improve your life. Or to say, you know, do you choose um, a bit more equality, but that means you just, you don't have freedom, you know, when referencing uh, particularly real socialism and so on. And so there's been this attempt to make sure that there isn't a quote-unquote good example to go by. And that's what Roger demonstrates actually to international powers. It's the threat of a good example of that an alternative to capitalism, to patriarchy, to uh, obviously neoliberalism exists. And that's why people all around the world, people who want to see a socialist future, people who want to see a democratic ecological future, people who want to save the earth as well, of course, need to understand that we need to stop as a reflex and sometimes unintentionally put in ourselves, even as sometimes progressive, but even some radicals in a position of, perhaps we should just save capitalism from, from itself because that will be easier to do and say, actually, this is the time for radical system change and we can really transform our entire society and take the power from a top central entity and bring it right down to the base level where we can control our own lives where we can make our own decisions and I think people particularly in the UK what we can do and right now we're living through a general election which is widely accepted as the fight of our lives as many labour activists particularly say and I, I believe that. I do think it's the fight of our lives. And that's not because I don't think there should be any illusions about what a Labour government and a Corbyn government can give us. It's nevertheless, it's still a state government. But I think it will be important to for, for it to be able to create the environment where we can fight for further radical change. Because right now, what the state of the UK is, you know, Sliding more into the far right, a aggressive form of capitalism, uh, the hostile environment, particularly for migrants and people who are considered as not from here, even if they were born here and, you know, the xenophobia and so on. So I think what people could do as an action is please write to all of your MP candidates, because right now, as it stands, all MPs are candidates because there's a general election and ask them for their position. And if they if they will pledge to, first and foremost, work towards and implement a radical, humanitarian, just, international and foreign policy. And therefore, what that will look like in protecting the democracy that is being developed in uh, northeast Syria, and also how they will hold the Turkish state accountable for the atrocities they have committed, for the war crimes they have committed, for their use of chemical weapons, which, by the way, has now come out that the white phosphorus that the Turkish state used in Seracania was sold by the UK. So, you know, what will, what will candidates do? What will, if you become an MP, what are you gonna do to ensure that these people can continue to develop a system that will be an example to the entire world? But also, to take direct action, you know, there's many arms companies, there's many, um, you know, Turkish state funded entities in the UK as well, to to agitate the, the, the existence of any Turkish state entity around the world. And to show that the people of the world are with the revolution of northeast Syria. And so you know, there's many ways one could. Of course, there's the Rise Up for Rojava. There's the Women Defend Rojava uh, platforms and campaigns, particularly women must organize around this. And please uh, create your Women Defend Rojava groups wherever you are in the country. Uh, get in touch with people from the Kurdish women's movement or you'll, if you have any contact with your local Kurdish community, get in touch with them, organize locally, organize direct action and also Perhaps one of the most immediate things people can do on a personal level is to make sure you do not holiday in Turkey because Turkish state holiday resorts have a direct link with uh, arms manufacturing uh, corporations. They're actually often owned by the same corporation, the arms manufacturers and uh, holiday resorts. And there's a website called boycott-turkey.net where there's a lot of information on this stuff too. And people are working on developing um, a a more uh, direct and sophisticated campaign in which people can get involved in.
0: Brilliant, yeah. Anything to add to that, Dilah?
2: I mean, Elif said
1: everything that needs to be said on that, but I would like to stress also an academic and cultural boycott has been uh, called for. Uh, So on top of the tourism and uh, Turkish products, uh, people... Have been This was an international effort, and it's. It was stressed that this is not to undermine the Turkish artists and cultural workers and academics who are, of course, struggling uh, democratically against the the state themselves, and many of them have been imprisoned and sacked and. Uh, lost, uh, you know, a lot of things in their lives. But this is against Turkish state funded and government funded projects. So uh, people have called on um, people around the world to boycott uh, conferences, concerts and um, other kinds of activities that are funded by the Turkey state, inside Turkey as well as outside. And I think um, what's also remarkable uh, is, for example, in Iraqi Kurdistan, in southern Kurdistan, where the Turkish state has, especially uh, since last decade, um, tried to basically economically colonize the region and to tie it uh, politically to the fate of Turkey, and to create also this kind of counterforce against the revolutionary Kurdish struggle, that the ordinary people, the people on the grassroots, are now taking personal initiatives to say we are boycotting Turkish products. Uh, people have been demanding less and less, um, apparently. So it's amazing to see how creative and how you know um, genuine all of the struggles uh, and actions that have been taken by people. Are And I mean, it's very significant to see, especially, I mean, Elif mentioned the Women Defend uh, Rojava campaign. Women have really genuinely rallied and, and they continue to do so for Rojava, around Rojava. I mean, so many people from around the world have traveled to Rojava, have gone there to observe, have gone there to learn, to exchange ideas. And they have gone back and they have been organizing in their own context because the people in Rojava from the beginning have been saying, uh, you know, we we cannot survive without system change everywhere in the world. So in a in a world system that is governed by nation states that is you know run by international institutions like the UN or military pacts like the NATO, yeah, uh, it is possible to to continue one's existence in a radical way. It is also possible to create safe havens for ourselves, but it's not going to ultimately change the. The course of the planet, which in times of uh, you know ecological catastrophe, in times of you know devastation, in times of uh, the erasure of indigenous communities, in a time of feminicide everywhere around the world, we cannot afford to not be organized. Mm-hmm. So in this sense, uh, I think it's it's quite historic to see how much women see uh, their own struggles to be connected to Rojava because um, this is an attack that is very much ideological. It's not only manifested in the crimes that are being committed against women's bodies and women's political will. Uh, in Rojava, it's also it's it's a fundamentally patriarchal institution, the nation state. And as Elif mentioned at the beginning, uh, we're talking about a region where the state, uh, where patriarchy have originated and institutionalized themselves and become something like a world system. And so Rojava, as an example for a democratic nation, as an example for a life where people can live together in solidarity if they organize themselves democratically, if they are committed to certain values that they create together that are not imported or kind of imposed on people from the top. And if this effort is led above all by women, and because they have the most to win, by this kind of system change, then Rojava really, truly stands for an example for the opposite of the nation-state system. And the fact that it originated in the same place where these systems of hierarchy and domination have institutionalized itself, it's quite historic. And I mean, this is how we see it. Maybe this is an ideological interpretation, but um, it has meaning and it gives us excitement. It gives us a sense of... Um, Yes, if we understand these systems of oppression as systems, then we also can demystify and kind of deconstruct the state in our own mentalities. We have learned with Rojava, not just the people in Rojava, but everywhere in the world, people have been given an example of we can live without the state. The state needs us, not the other way around. A non-capitalist or anti-capitalist life is possible. Uh, Women's freedom is Possible. Above all that, I think. And this is kind of um, why I think so many women around the world are now going to be on the streets today. Because Rojava shows that, you know, patriarchy is not fate. It's not something that is biological. It's not nature. It's something that if we are organized, and that's the condition, though. If we are organized, we can change not just one place, but the whole world. And this is why just to kind of come back to the beginning, this is why all of these states are united in their Mm. desire to suppress this kind of alternative because it means they are also suppressing alternatives in their own homes. Now, by allowing this ethnic cleansing campaign, which is also a war on women, which is also a war against an alternative system, to go ahead, all of these countries are also at the same time suppressing alternatives and struggles and movements and opposition and d- dissent in their own countries because they're saying look if you want anything other than what the current system represents that's not going to happen because capitalism is your life capitalism is the end of history and Rojava said no to that at a time in which uh, in the Middle East um, like non-alternatives were imposed on people saying you have to choose between this or that system there cannot be an in-between. Rojava said, no, we have an alternative, and that alternative is not just a reaction to whatever else is there, but it's autonomous. So in this way, I think as uh, people on the left, as people consider themselves as being against the current system, we need to also be able to be creative and autonomous in our politics, which is why we encourage especially people on the left to not get drawn too much into um, narratives and discourses Of the states, but focus on organizing societies uh, in their own context and also for other people. And we need to overcome basic solidarity. Yes, it's easy to just be basically in solidarity with people. We need to organize together. We need to have common strategies. We need to have common plans. We cannot just wait for the next massacre to happen and then we all send out statements and that's it. So in this way, um, we really, as the women's movement in particular, we're focusing our energy on organising with the women's movements in the countries where we live, in Kurdistan, as well as everywhere else where we are.
0: Once again, that was Dilar Dirik and Elif Sarakan. So huge thanks to both of them for coming on the show. This has been another episode of Radicals in Conversation. If you value the kind of discussion that we've had today and want to help us reach a wider audience, then please do leave us a review on whatever platform it is that you listen to your podcasts, and of course you can share the link on social media as well. If you want to find out more about Rojava, then Pluto has published a number of books about it in the last three years. Just go to plutobooks.com forward slash to browse that list, and you can use the coupon code podcast at the checkout to get 50% off those books. Lastly, for anyone who's expecting this month's episode to be about James Baldwin, as I promised last time, that conversation is now going to be out in early December instead, so do stay tuned for that. Until then, thank you for listening and goodbye.